welcome. This is a Vascular Forum interview. Hello and welcome to this new Vascular Forum interview. My name is Melina Vega de Zenia. In previous podcasts, we have been exploring different innovations in complex endovascular treatment. And today we're going to focus on endoanchors, a complementary endosuturin technique for endovascular aortic repair. To discuss its ins and outs in depth, we have with us today Professor Mauro Gargiulo, head of the vascular department at the Bologna University Hospital Santa Orsola Malpigi, Italy, and current president of the ESVS, and Professor Jean-Paul de Vries, chair of the Department of Surgery at the University Medical Center in Groningen, the Netherlands. Thank you both very much for making the time to talk to us today. A pleasure to, to meet you. Thank you very much. Yes, and the pleasure is also mine. Let's begin with the basics. The previous Aptus, and now Helifix, endoanchor system was developed to improve proximal or distal fixation and sealing between the native aorta and aortic endografts by introducing spiral-shaped screws from the aortic lumen through the endograft material and the aortic wall as far in as the adventitia. It received FDA approval in 2011 with indications in patients whose endografts have migrated or developed a type 1 endoleak and also primarily for the prevention of these complications in patients in whom an augmented radial fixation and or sealing is required to regain or maintain adequate aneurysm exclusion. That is, patients who have what we generally regard as a hostile neck in the limit or out of instruction for use. Professors, how do you define an adequate or sufficient sealing zone and what hostile characteristics can endoanchors overcome to gain this sufficient sealing? Yes, I think well, there is a difference uh, in sealing zone between the, the pre-operative, so the target anticipated sealing zone, and the post-operative, the real achieved uh, seal zone. But in my mind, um, the minimum uh, you want to have as a sealing zone is at least one centimeter of circumferential seal between the endograft and the aortic wall. Uh, uh, Mauro, what, what is your opinion? Yeah, I agree totally with you. Uh, I know very well that uh, you are uh, working about the definition of the ceiling zone, Jean-Paul, with different uh, studies. And uh, I totally agree with you that today, even according with the ICU, it is important to have a conical neck with one centimeter of length minimum for a good apposition between the endograft and the aortic neck. We have to be inside of the IFU, and in this IFU today, we have these morphological aspects. Yes, I think we really should also focus on the first post-operative CT scan to see if we really have achieved that seal zone, because that will hopefully provide a sustainable seal during follow-up. So I think there's also an important thing to add. We are always focusing on the pre-operative imaging and sizing and selection, but I think we also should focus on what we really have achieved post-operative. So when you're planning a primary procedure or a secondary procedure, what characteristics can the endo anchors overcome to gain this sufficient sealing primarily or secondarily? My first comment is that the endo anchors uh, will add strength to seal. And I think it's a misconception that the endo anchors maybe will extend the seal. So if you really have to extend seal because the inferior neck is too short or too hostile, the endoanchors cannot solve that problem, but they, they perfectly can add strength to seal. And Maro, for you, what are the main hostile neck characteristics when you, when you use the endoanchors? 
generally we need the endoanchors only to guarantee the stabilization of the endograft and to decrease if it's possible like zero the possibility of migration and the follow-up of these patients then uh, in our uh, daily practice generally we use primarily the endoanchors in some uh, anatomical characteristics of the neck first uh, in patient with uh, wide and short neck these are the main indication for us. Then I totally agree with you that it is important in the course to stabilize it, to stop the possibility to have migration in the follow-up of our endograft after the implant in AAA. Okay, please explain the technical details of endoanchor implantation. So how many are the minimum and maximum endoanchors to place? Where exactly do you position them? And how do you ensure correct apposition between the endoanchor, the stent graft, and the native aortic wall? Yeah, all important questions uh, to be answered. Um, I think, well, it depends how many endoanchors uh, on the indication. So for prophylactic use, according to instructions for use, it depends on the diameter of the aortic neck. So less than 29 millimeters in prophylactic use, you can use at minimum four and above 29 millimeter six. In my daily practice, there are 10 endoanchors in the cassette. So I usually use them all. And nowadays I use two rings or two rows of endoanchors, uh, maybe five millimeters uh, from each other, approximately and distally. And I think it's really important that all the endoanchors are really penetrating the aortic wall. So for me, I start just below the fabric with my first row. And then five millimeters below, I use them a second row. So hopefully all the endoanchors will be in the seal zone. For me, it's uh, quite similar. In our daily practice, generally, we use um, six or more than six endoanchors uh, when we have to implant endoanchors and the endograft. And generally, we are uh, two, maximum three millimeters uh, below the fabric. Not always it is possible, you know, because it depends on the angle of the neck. It's not simple sometimes to be perpendicular to the aortic wall and the wall of the graft. The maximum I think I can do to hopefully have the endomancus also in the aortic wall is that the length of the tip of the applier and the guide is almost similar to the diameter. And then I'm pushing the plier and also the end of anchor during implantation. You, sometimes you see bulging of the endograft, and then I think I know that I'm really pushing the endograft or the end of ankle in the endograft and also in the article. I think, Jean-Paul, that you stressed a, a very important point that I don't think is in the daily practice of all the physicians. Is the numbers of the endoanchors according with the diameter of the neck? This is a very important technical point. Do you always come from below or can you navigate from above? If it's possible, generally, I try to navigate from below, from the femoral axis. But when we have some neck with angle, we implanted some endoanchors from the brachial axis in patients with the neck angle more than 45 degree. Yeah, but I think that is really well, not exceptional, but I think it's the minority of the patients. Well... I think also in my practice, maybe 90% will really come from the common femoral artery. And especially in that angulated neck, sometimes it's really difficult to overcome that inner curve of the angulated neck. And sometimes then I have to change for the contralateral groin. 
uh, to have a kind of S configuration instead of a C com configuration. Uh, that can also be a technical uh, tip to overcome the angulated necks and especially the inner curve. Great. Are all endographs compatible with endoanchors or is there any material where it is not recommended? Yeah, it's compatible now for Gore, Coop, the former Yotic platform, uh, all the Medtronic uh, endographs. It's not compatible with the former PowerLink uh, platform. There was a higher risk of, uh, well, tearing the fabric. So that's the only exception. Let's separate the primary prophylactic and secondary therapeutic indications. Which indication is the most common in your practice? Today, we prefer to use it as a prophylactic treatment. And in patients with endolytic type 1A, then secondary use of endoanchors, we treat generally now in my daily practice, my center, with other technologies generally. I think it's the same for us now. The majority of the challenging necks, especially angulation in combination with a larger diameter, I think there's a good indication for prophylactic use. And more patients suffering, I think, uh, complications post-EVAR with type 1 endoleaks, etc., already have hostile necks. And if they also suffer type 1 endoleaks, sometimes the problem is too big for only endo-anchoring. And then we have to extend the seal. And that's, I think that's why it's important to stress that the endo-anchors add strength to seal, but they cannot extend the seal. And in the majority, I think, of the revisions nowadays... Yeah, we really need fenestrated cuffs and things like that. So you would recommend it as a complementary primary procedure in wide angulated necks, but not recommend it in necks shorter than one centimeter? Well, I think there's, of course, a debate. And of course, there are patients for urgent repair, symptomatic aneurysms, uh, maybe hostile anatomy where you don't want to have any stents in the renal arteries or in the visceral arteries where there can be an indication to repair the aneurysm endovascularly with a standard infrarenal device. If then there is a short neck, you can use, of course, to add strength the endoanchors. But nowadays, in my practice, if at the pre-EVAR scan there is a neck shorter than one centimeter, we know that the achieved ceiling post-EVAR is maybe two millimeters shorter than my pre-operative neck length. So if it's possible... I would choose to extend the seal with TVAR or with FIVAR or sometimes with open surgery. This, I think, is a very important point because I agree totally with Jean-Paul that we have some subgroup of patients with wide neck or with short neck. And regarding wide neck, in our daily practice, more than 28 patients with age less than 80 Generally, we prefer to use in these patients other technologies like, for example, fenestrated endograft if uh, morphologically it's possible. But if the patient is older, generally we prefer to use standard endograft associated with the endoanchors. Regarding a short neck, is uh, quite the same because if the neck is less than one centimeter, between 0.5 and one centimeter in our daily practice, again, the role of the age of patients first and in the same time, the morphology of the aneurysm is another very important point. You know that if the indication is a fever, we need a waiting time. But if we have an aneurysm of more than 7 centimeters, in our experience, we had 4% of rupture of this patient during the waiting time. Then 
we prefer to guarantee the ceiling zone uh, with endoencos. Then uh, in our daily practice, uh, generally wide neck and short neck, but according with the age of patients, uh, the diameter of the aneurysm and the persons or not or symptoms. Yeah, so it's, of course, it's patient-tailored treatments. And I think that's why it's an, really of added value to have the endoencos also on the shelf, also for the urgent cases where you, well, have short necks or sometimes you have an acute or a primary type 1A endoleaks. So I think it's very helpful to have it, to have really patient-tailored treatment and you can decide whether or not to use them. As a primary adjunct, how much additional time cost radiation do you estimate it would add to a standard EVAR? Yeah, from the anchor registry, more than a thousand patients have been included. And the average time to implant the end of anchors, well, the average end of anchors number was six. And the average time to implant was 90 minutes. But of course, there's a learning curve. So if you are more experienced, I think Mauro and, and also I, I think the average time to implant six end of anchors is not 90 minutes, but less, really less. And the cost, yeah, it depends on the on the country where you live and even the hospital where you live in, <laughs> in a country. But of course, there are some additional costs. On the other hand, if you can prevent re-interventions, I think you will save costs. So it's always a difficult discussion. Maybe during the primary procedure, you add some costs. But again, re-intervention is extremely expensive. So you can also save costs if you prevent, I think, one re-intervention in a patient. So, so is that 19 less 19 or 1990? No, sorry, it's 1919. One, one okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay, so, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Manina. I agree totally with Jean Paul. Uh, there is a learning curve regarding the implantation of the endo anchors. Then uh, it is, uh, I think, uh, a normal possibility to decrease uh, in time of the procedure after uh, three or four cases, uh, then uh, it's not uh, very difficult uh, if you have uh, experience with endovascular therapy. Another very important point, uh, I think it's important to stress uh, the words of Jean-Paul regarding the cost and the cost related to the re-intervention. We published a paper regarding the percentage of re-intervention after two years in patients with wide neck without endoencors, and the percentage related to the neck was about 18%. This is a very important point when we have to evaluate even the cost. It's not the cost of the procedure. Absolutely, the cost increased, but it's the cost in the follow-up of our patients. Right. Now, let's dig into the secondary indication that you said was minoritarian in, in your practice, the treatment of type 1 endoleaks and or endograft migration. Which are the scenarios favorable for successful treatment of endoanchors? And in which others would you avoid endoanchors and move on to other technologies like fever? The indication, I think, is there is maybe a localized a kind of gutter, I think, in between the endograft and the aortic wall. If there's really a circumferential gap of more than two millimeters between the endograft and the aortic wall, I think it's very hard to solve the problem with only endoanchors, so it's a, a kind of gutter-related uh, type 1A endoleaks. That is maybe one of the primary uh, reasons. And what I uh, also do for a type 1 endoleak, especially if the primary endograft is migrated, that I also tag the uh, remaining endograft with the aortic wall. And then maybe sometimes I do an extension, because if you don't fix a partially migrated primary endograft and you don't fix it, then sometimes the primary endograft will persist 
to migrate and then you can have another problem, a type 3 endoleak between the proximal cuff and the endograft. And in very calcified aortic walls and a type 1 endoleak, I think it's a problem to solve that problem with endobank. So it's mainly, I think, localized gutters uh, and then gutter-related type 1 endoleaks. Generally, in case of migration of the endograft, uh, we don't use endoanchors uh, in our daily practice uh, and the uh, in case of uh, endoleak type 1A, the depends uh, of the distance between the graft uh, and the aortic wall and the gutter volume. And uh, generally, if uh, the distance between uh, the aortic wall and the endograft uh, is uh, one or two millimeters, probably it is possible to guarantee with the up to the ceiling of the endograft. But uh, if uh, the distance increase, uh, I think it's very difficult. And then uh, generally we prefer to other technologies. Those are excellent tips. Thanks a lot for that. By the way, we're always thinking about type 1A endoleaks. I know it's out of instructions for use of endostables, but have you done it or is there potential for endosuturing also in the prevention or treatment of type 1B endoleaks? We don't have experience regarding uh, one uh, B endoleak in the limbs. Uh, generally, if it's possible, uh, we try to guarantee the ceiling zone uh, in hypogastric artery. If it's not possible to land correctly in the common uh, iliac artery, then uh, we don't have experience about this. Uh, we know that we have some uh, cases in the literature, but... Uh, no, I agree. And what is, I think, also the problem is that the diameter of the iliac limbs are too small to really deflect the tip of the applier in the endocytes because you really want to be perpendicular to the endograft. I think that's one of the technical problems. And the second thing is that the, the iliac veins are, I think, very close to the iliac arteries. And nobody knows, maybe it's not dangerous, but I think the risk of tearing also and have, well, the tip of the endovancus in the iliac veins is uh, is increased. So I would leave it. And I think we do have a lot of other techniques to spare internal iliac arteries or maybe to overstand one side the internal iliac artery. So it's also not our uh, experience to use the endovancus distally. So the potential benefits of endoanchor placement are increasing successful and durable sealing. What are the potential complications of this technique? I think it's a safe technique. In literature, there are, I think, only a few complications described uh, related to the endoanchors. I think there's one endoanchor dislodged in the renal artery. Of course, that can happen. On the other hand, well... When we started to use the end of anchors, we didn't have all the uh, length of the pliers available. And then we had some undersized pliers. In my learning curve, I lost two end of anchors, but they stay because the patient is in supine positions to stay at the lowest part of the endograft, which was rather surprising because I thought they would go with the flow to the below the arteries, but they stayed in the endograft and we could snare them. There can always be a, a lost end of anchor, but I think you can rather easily snare them. And I'm not really aware of peripheral emboli cases due to the introduction of the delivery system. But maybe, Mauro, you uh, you have? In our experience, we didn't have any complication in the aortic walls. I agree with you. Today is a safe device. If you use this according with the IFU, if you are perpendicular, if you work correctly, I think that today is absolutely a safe approach to the aortic neck. Let's look at the evidence available on the results of this primary indication. The anchor registry was established in 2012, 
with the aim of evaluating the use of endoanchors as an adjunct to EVAR for the prevention of proximal neck complication or as a treatment of ceiling complications and enrolled patients with either a hostile neck or a type 1A endoleak. Professor De Rios, you are one of the principal investigations of the registry. How many patients have been included as of 2022 in the registry in each of the two modalities? Well, there have been 1,086 patients included. A lot of those are in the primary group, so 771 are included in the primary group, and yeah, the remaining is for the revision group. So the Anchor Registry recently presented in Charing Cross the three-year results on aneurysms with wide proximal necks, 28 millimeters or more in diameter, which you said was one of the main indications, with a 98.5% freedom from type 1A endoleak and 91.3% sac regression or stability. Would you like to comment on this update? Yeah, I think that are excellent results. And taking into account that far the majority of those patients do have at least one hostile neck characteristic. Of course, yeah, there is no randomized trial with a control group without endovancus, but I think it really shows that the seal at the proximal part of the endograft is sustainable with a very high percentage of sac regression. I think that is important because I think it's one of the well, maybe major endpoints post-EVAR, because we all know that SAC increase will also increase not only the need for interventions, but also aneurysm and patient-related mortality. Did you find differences in the results depending on the index neck characteristics, conicity or angulation or length? Have you performed uh, this subgroup analysis? No, so far we didn't, because it's really difficult because the neck characteristics is always a combination and you cannot say this is one particular neck or hostile neck characteristic in one patient so we didn't do the sub-analysis. And the registry has been running from 2012. Is there any preliminary data maybe on five-year results? Yes, well, recently we had the five-year results, especially for the primary arm. And again, I think we have to emphasize that the majority of those patients, almost 89% of those patients do have at least one hostile neck characteristic. At five years, the freedom from aneurysm-related mortality is up to 98%. Maybe what is more important is the freedom from secondary procedures to treat a type 1 endoleak. It's 96%. And the freedom from aneurysm rupture is 97.7%. What is also then, I think, important is to know how many of the aneurysm sacs are stable or decreased in diameter, and it's more than 88%. So again, at five years, the results are good for the primary arm. There is a very recent publication of the Peru Registry. That's a multicenter prospective database of 221 patients treated with ESAR for primary or secondary indication, independent from the Anchor Registry and not sponsored by industry like Anchor is. They report similar data with freedom from type 1A endoleak at two years of 96% and 86% for the primary and revision groups, and overall freedom from all-cause mortality, aneurysm-related mortality, and re-intervention of 89%, 98%, and 67% respectively. Any comments on this data? According with data, we can support the use of the endoanchors in daily practice. It is possible to have a very good result in the clinical practice, uh, 
regarding uh, the all cause of mortality, aneurysm related mortality, or intervention if you use the endocrine course with the correct indication and the correct use of the endocrine course during uh, the deployment. Yes, and I think what we also can uh, differentiate between the primary group and therapeutic group or the revision group is that yet the technical success, but also the midterm results of the revision group yeah, is not as good as the prophylactic group, which sounds reasonable. And maybe I think it's not due to the end of anchors, but I think it's also due to the primary indication. If the neck is too challenging, you can, maybe cannot repair it with standard EVO. Maybe you cannot solve it with the endovancors. But we had to extend maybe in the primary repair to the Yuxta or suprarenal aorta. There are actually some ongoing projects, randomized studies in hostile neck aneurysms involving endovancors that will provide further evidence on this technique and help elucidate the role and specific indications in these patients. We'll definitely be on the lookout for the publication of the results because the registries do not really allow one-on-one comparison with standard EVAR, control arm, or FEVAR, or open repair. Yeah, I think that we need to wait the uh, Socrates trial and Deprez trials uh, to define the correct indication of the endoencors and uh, to port uh, this technique uh, in uh, comparison with the use of the other technologies. Uh, because, uh, you know, in these trials, you have uh, the possibility to compare the results of um, endoencors and the standard EVAR versus standard EVAR or endoencors and EVAR versus FEVAR. And then um, probably... According with these results, we will define the correct use of these endoencors in patients with indication even for fever or for EVAR. These are two very important trials, and we need to have the mid-term and long-term result of this trial to define correctly if it's possible to support endoencors in some anatomy that are dedicated today to the, for example, to fever. I'm particularly interested also in the Hercules trial because it may give an answer if the endoanchors really can prevent neck dilatation, which should be, I think, a very good also added value of the use of the endoanchor. You previously mentioned that a migrated graft might benefit from placing endoanchors to stabilize it even before a proximal extension. And I'm wondering, would the presence of endoanchors complicate any future interventions should they be needed? Well, no, that's, I think, one of the other good things about the endovancors. There's a rare end. And so if you use the endovancors, they will penetrate the fabric and the aortic wall. But because of the rare end, it's a smooth surface. So you can also use a balloon after the implantation of the endovancors. You can also use cuffs or giant stands or whatever. So it doesn't preclude any other endovascular reinterventions. What about endoanchor implantation in the thoracic aorta? What's your experience? Maybe I don't have experiences about the use of the TVAR as the prevention of type 1B endolic. Our indication today is only in the uxtorinal position in the patient with some neck at risk of a late complication. We have some experience. I think the indication was bird beaking. With the current generation uh, thoracic endographs, I think it's less of a problem. But the first generation had some bird beaking. So then we used the endoanchors to oppose the inner part of the uh, thoracic endograph to the aortic wall. It can be sometimes more difficult to really have your perpendicular view with your C-arm of the tip of the applier. The interesting thing 
is that if you want to place the anim anchors in the inner curve of the uh, proximal TFR, you have to use a larger applier and ender guide. And it's more easy to have the anim anchors in the outer curve with a smaller device because then it's almost a straight line. So there are some maybe more technical tips and tricks. So I think if you start with anim anchoring, well, first use them in not too challenging anatomy in the abdominal aorta before you start in the thoracic aorta. And Jean-Paul, in, in this case, you prefer to go again from the common femoral artery or from the brachial axis? Yeah, so far our experience was from the common femoral artery. And then sometimes we have to use two length of a plier. What I said before, the differentiating the inner and the outer curve. And what I normally do then is when I have a good position of my applier and ender guides at the endograft, then I change the view of my C-arm. And I think in my abdominal cases, I first have my C-arm, for instance, uh, 45 degrees areo, and then I switch with my applier. And it's the other way around in the thoracic part. First have my applier in a perfect position, and then maybe change the C-arm to have a perpendicular view. To finish off, let's look at the current guidelines. In the 2019 ESVS Clinical Practice Guidelines on the Management of Abdominal Aortic Aneurysms, there is a grade three recommendation for juxtarenal aneurysms, stating that new techniques, concepts, including endovascular aneurysm seal, endostaples, and in-situ laser fenestration are not recommended as first-line treatment, but should be limited to studies approved by research ethics committees until adequately evaluated, with current level of evidence C. There is also a class 1 recommendation with level of evidence B, stating that in patients with type 1 endoleak after EVAR, reintervention to achieve seal primarily by endovascular means is recommended. And the text mentions the options of graft balloon dilatation, insertion of a bare metal stent, the use of endostaples, or extension of the landing zone, with open explant and repair as the last resort. The body of evidence will grow with the ongoing studies we mentioned previously. How do you foresee the evolution of endoanchors during the next 10 years? This is a fantastic question for the future. I think that probably we will increase the percentage of patients that need to add the endoanchors for the stabilization of the endograft because we have in our daily practice today an increase of the numbers of patients with age more than 80 and with some anatomical difficulties at the level of the neck. Yeah, I agree, Mauro. I think maybe because of the increasing life expectancy of patients, and that's why I'm so interested in the midterm results of the Hercules trial, if we really can prove that the endoanchors will maybe prevent neck dilatation, and with the increasing life expectancy of patients, it can also be a good uh, solution. Perfect. Well, thank you both. We have covered a lot of ground. We have defined the characteristics of hostile legs, the primary and secondary indications of endosuturing, technical tips, and the latest results. Any final comments or take-home message before we wrap up? It was a great pleasure to be with you and uh, with Jean-Paul. This is uh, one of the main uh, authors of the studies about the endoanchors in the world. And it was a great pleasure to be part of this podcast. I think that it's important to stay inside of the ICU of the endoanchors and to use the endoanchors according to the technical indication. I think that with this approach, we can guarantee 
the safety of the procedure, and even the clinical and morphological result of the endovascular treatment of aortic disease when we need to add this new technology. Yeah, and maybe to add one thing, and that's when I'm on call and there's an urgent aneurysm patient, a few times that I was really happy that I had a set of anavancas uh, on the shelf. So I think it's really uh, an added value if you want to completely treat uh, patients with challenging aortic necks and EFR procedures. I'm happy that the technique is available and there are, I think, some really good indications to use it and also to save your patients from uh, disasters. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, professors. It has been a very interesting and educational discussion and a pleasure chatting with you in this podcast. And let me remind our listeners that Professor Gargiulo will be hosting this year's ESVS annual meeting in Rome on September 20th to 23rd. It will be a face-to-face meeting with top presentations in a fabulous location and also streamed live all over the world. It's going to be the event of the year. Can you give us any sneak peeks on what we can look forward to? Thank you, Melina. This is a fantastic uh, opportunity to remember that uh, we will have in Rome between 20 and 23 of September. Inside of this meeting, we will have uh, a lot of scientific session and we will discuss about the guideline, we will discuss about uh, the new technologies, we will discuss about uh, all topics, uh, arterial and venous uh, topics. And we will have uh, e poster session and we will have a very important session regarding academy, the educational arm of our society. Registration is open. Don't miss it, either on-site or online. I will definitely be there, and I very much look forward to it. I hope all of you out there listening have enjoyed this interview as much as I have. Remember, all ESVS podcasts are available open access in SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Vascular Forum webpage, and the ESVS e-library. Impossible to miss. New material coming up soon. Keep tuned. Have a great week, everyone. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.